The Women's Health Project is produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and future and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. In it, mob, reckon you've got to have a balanced diet. Well, my diet's balanced. The six dinnies on this side balance the five cakes and the three hot dogs on this side. Oh, I feel crook. Better have another cake. And you shouldn't eat too much either. Or you'll get fat, like Norm. Who are you going fat? You. That's Norm. You might remember him. Norm featured on Australian television screens for more than 20 years as part of the Life Be In It campaign. It's considered one of Australia's most successful public health campaigns. And it's taken me until 2021 to realise that Norm may have just shaped a lot about how I think about women's health. This is the Women's Health Project, a special podcast series created by Women's Agenda and supported by Organon, the recently launched pharmaceutical company dedicated to a better and healthier every day for every woman. In this episode, we're going to skirt the edges of some very, very big topics like heart disease, dementia, the impact of social media on women's health and more, all of which we'll be coming back to later on in this series. But overall, the goal today is to consider some of the significant loads that women are carrying, loads that are both physically and mentally draining, and to question how such loads may impact women's health, particularly healthy ageing. And as for Norm, well, he'll have a starring role. Thanks for listening. I'm going to talk a lot about Norm today. So for those of you who are too young to remember or who were not in Australia at the time, I should probably explain. Norm was the key character in a major television campaign by Life Be In It. He was middle-aged, he had a large beer belly or big stomach bones as he described it. He sat in a chair and stared at a TV with a tinny in hand. He loved to watch sport and he was created to depict a normal Australian bloke. He was supposed to encourage Australians to get off the couch to exercise and to eat well. So I caught the tail end of Norm as a child in the 1980s and as Norm started working with the National Heart Foundation of Australia. And Norm did a lot of good in raising awareness of heart disease, among other things. Thinking back, I feel instinctively like this was a message for men or really for fathers, given that was what I knew about men at the time. I never thought about Norm as carrying a message for women. Heart disease, obesity, high cholesterol, a need for exercise, all those things that an overweight Norm sitting on the couch in front of a TV was supposed to represent. I thought of those as things that were issues impacting men. After all, a key female character in the ad wore 1980s aerobic style activewear and was telling Norm to get off the couch to eat healthy. She even told him he was fat. Oh, Norm, you're not watching the telly again. No, this is educational, Libby. It's all about obesity and how bad it is for you. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't like to catch it. You don't catch obesity, Norm. Huh? How do you get it then? By eating too much, by eating the wrong things, or by not doing any exercise. Oh. Um, what is obesity exactly? sure if it was Norm who convinced me or if it was an accumulation of different things but I've gone through a significant part of my life believing that heart disease is mostly a man's problem even though my own grandmother had a triple bypass before I was born. 
But when you look at how public health campaigns like Norm were positioned, it's easy to see why some of us, maybe many of us, might actually have this impression. Norm was memorable and, you know what, Norm was successful, particularly in raising awareness of heart disease. It was targeted investments, including this type of campaign, which saw heart disease-related deaths in men decline significantly from the 1960s. But that's just it. Norm was a man, a character created to not only appeal to men, but also to the women who might have a Norm in their lives. Professor Cassandra Serkey alerted me to Norm. The neurologist, professor of medicine and clinical researcher is also director of the Women's Healthy Ageing Project at the University of Melbourne. I spoke to Cassandra after reading her book, Secrets of Healthy Aging, where she highlighted the example of Norm, along with this stat. By the mid-1980s, more women than men were dying from heart disease. So what I would say is around the time of Norm, which was around the 90s, 80s, 90s, Norm was depicted as a gentleman who had a a higher than normal body mass index. And he was often depicted sitting in front of a television so indicating he didn't move much. And uh, this woman would come in who was his partner and she was in aerobics tights mm. with the leg warmers. I can and see she'd it now. Trying to get him, she'd be trying to get him up and moving. And so the take-home message from that for a population was women have to help their men get off the cap. Whereas, in fact, women, so 50% of the population of females have a higher than uh, healthy body mass index. Less than 30% get enough physical activity. Less than 10% eat enough fruit and veg, you know, and um, it's getting less. I think it's, uh, it's, sorry, it's my paper, PLOS One, Unhealthy Habits Persist in Women, that even fewer eat enough fish and legumes. So, in fact, women you know, had the same risk factors, but they were targeted as being healthy. And I think some of that comes from the fact, you know, when we say women and men don't have the same disease, that's not to say we should focus on one or the other. The differences mean you should target differently. So for men, they are more likely to have a heart attack that kills them where they stand. However, women have more small vessel disease, which means they'll often have a heart attack and survive it, but they get heart failure. So in fact, overall, heart disease is more common in women than men. So there are different types of norm, I guess you could say, all over the world, different public health campaigns and appeals that, whether intentionally or otherwise, often urge men to address their lifestyles and for women to help them to do so. Cassandra highlights the 1964 example of the American Heart Association's first office conference advertised as for women only. You might think the aim of the event was to address heart disease in women, but actually it aimed to answer the question, how can I help my husband cope with heart disease? It would be a long time before we started to recognise that heart disease is different in men and women with different symptoms, different research, and often requiring different awareness campaigns. So what people often think of when thinking about women's health, this is as Cassandra puts it, is bikini health. That is anything that is typically covered by a bikini. So breast cancers, reproductive health, cervical cancer, endometriosis and other things. And these absolutely should be given the attention received and even more attention. But Cassandra urges us to also think about hearts and brains. I said I was going to give a talk on women's health and people turn up and when I put up a slide of the brain, they're confused. The leading causes of death in Australia for women, number one leading cause of death is dementia. Number two leading cause of death is heart disease. Number three leading cause of death is stroke, which is a blood vessel blockage to the brain. 
So brain and heart are right up there, three leading causes of death. And yet, when I say women's health, people think other things. And so there is this focus on bits and bobs. And to some extent, that means, practically speaking, women often disregard their brains and their hearts, thinking they need to focus elsewhere. Dementia and Alzheimer's disease account for 11% of deaths in women in 2016, followed closely by coronary heart disease. Dementia is also the third leading cause of disability in women. Two-thirds of people living with dementia are women. The National Women's Health Strategy 2020 to 2030 makes some mention of dementia, but it's hardly an area of focus other than provided with some broad brush statements. The strategy speaks about the need to better invest in research for understanding dementia in women as well as for resources that can help prevent dementia. It says to offer funding to improve diagnosis, treatment and care options and strategies that can help reduce the progression of the disease. This is a huge ask given the prevalence of dementia in women, but the funding just is not there. I had honestly not given Norm a second's thought over the past couple of decades until Cassandra brought him up. And I've since gone through the videos and research supporting the Norm campaigns and even seen calls for Norm to be resurrected in recent years. And to me now as an adult, one of the most intriguing things is not so much Norm, rather it's actually the woman who is depicted in that ad. The one who told Norm he was fat. The idea that the campaign was sharing a subtle message for women to take some responsibility for the men in their lives, a male partner most notably, to urge him to get off the couch. So we've discussed heart disease and dementia in this episode, but I promised I would get to the point of the loads that women carry. And here it is. What I see in Norm is a load. And it's not the load that he carried, rather it is what she did. It reminds us of many of the loads women carry and the need to consider them when discussing women's health. We just don't do this enough. We just haven't been measuring the time women are putting into unpaid work and calculating just what that is actually worth to the economy. We get some idea from research from the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia or HILDA Research, such as their 2018 finding that women are spending an average 13 hours a week on unpaid housework and childcare. But even though a time use survey could give us some numbers on just what's being contributed, it won't be able to fully calculate the cumulative impact of the different loads women are carrying. Because sometimes these aren't about time and they're not about money. So what kind of loads are we talking about? Well, first, there's a load the norm ad depicts, along with so many other campaigns. These are campaigns that suggest women should take on to identify symptoms in others. And this isn't always a bad thing, I might add. What women learn and know about public health can have significant impacts in their communities. But we should still consider the load that those women then take on. Then there's the load of paid work. There's the load of unpaid work involving everything from caring for children to elderly parents or someone with a disability alongside the load of domestic responsibilities. There's the mental load, taking on the thinking and organising for a household. There's the load of sexism, sexual harassment, violence and assault. For some groups of women, there's the added load of racism, ageism, disability. There's a socioeconomic disadvantage and the real fear of retiring into poverty. Then the more we look into women's health, we see the accumulating weight of other loads, a load of having pain ignored, of carrying an injury, of taking on anxiety, of quietly contending with the emotional and physical pain of miscarriage, of childbirth, of menopause. These loads have adjusted over the decades and created unique circumstances during the pandemic. 
But they all speak to a real need to understand women's health over time. They speak to the need to get a better understanding of how we spend our time and to apply that to a broader appreciation for healthy aging, even to a better appreciation to what will make us happy. Cassandra's book is based on the findings of a clinical study that has focused on the health of more than 400 women from their mid to late lives over the last 30 years. It's truly unique data and work, the longest of its kind in Australia. And it can tell us a lot about how chronic illnesses develop over time, which ultimately then aids in understanding the preventative measures that can be taken. But even as late as 1990, getting this kind of research off the ground was not easy. It was utterly novel. They had to create their own office, which was called the Office of Gender and Health, because the whole concept of studying this was just didn't fit in a category at the university. <laughs> the other thing was the principal investigator who started at Lorraine Denistein, her publications in the 80s, she's a psychiatrist, were around the concept of hysteria. And so she was interested in looking at these. She was getting a lot of referrals from um, midlife women who were hysterical midlife women who had empty nest syndrome. Mm. And so she really thought, she joined with colleagues who were very physicianly. So she had Henry Berger, endocrinologist, checking the hormone levels. Um, And, you know, that's one of the strengths of the study. It's got these great physical measures as well as mental health measures, Mm. where often studies will just look at one or the other. And she wanted to see what's going on over the menopause. So actually, Henry Berger got an Order of Australia and an international award for the work he did in defining the endocrinology of the menopause in the study. Okay. So that wasn't a thing as much as it is now. Now we take for granted, you go to a menopause clinic, they didn't exist. As I went back and looked at those ads about Norm, there was one thing that struck me, and that was the very different type of message that women get today, and men, I might add. And it's a message that really does create an additional load. This one isn't via a public health campaign. Rather, it's from something else, social media. Now, we'll get into social media in a few weeks' time. It's an important part of the conversation on women's health. But I want to touch on it now in the context of what the Women's Healthy Aging Project has found. Because coming in stark contrast to norm, uh, today women called Heidi or Martine or Emma I'm talking about a whole host of fitfluencers, individuals across social media, sharing photos and videos of their lean bodies, as well as their exercise programs, sending the message to followers that they too can have these bodies. If only they put in the work, pushing fitness goals that would take hours of work a day, as well as unsustainable calorie restrictions. And even if you could follow all of this, it would most likely be unachievable to replicate the body that you're looking at. Now, these fitfluencers are not only reserved women, They target men too. Indeed, body-related pressures on mental health are increasing among men. But ultimately, all of this does add up to another load for women, one that's evolved from seeing impossibly beautiful women in hard copy magazines and in Hollywood to seeing them constantly on your phone, available to you 24-7. It was much easier to put down the magazine or to even avoid buying it in the first place than it is now to be able to put down your phone. And all of this contributes to that additional load, a load that says... Sometimes at 30 minutes of moderate exercise a day is not good enough. You need to follow a specific diet and physical activity programs and start saving for a Peloton spin bike. A load that even suggests that if you can't get anything close to perfection, then is there really any point of trying? 
That again is why the study Cassandra's worked on is so great. It takes in 30 years of data rather than examining the outcomes for participants over, say, a 12-week trial. It sees the real outcomes of physical exercise, of eating well and of having great social connections rather than just what a carefully edited and specially placed photo on Instagram tells you about another woman's health. So what did the Healthy Aging Project find? What we looked at was, and we know intense activity does great things for reducing cholesterol in blood, reducing sugar in blood. So we actually, as researchers, we expected that there would be um, more benefits with intense activity. But when we look over 30 years, golly gosh, it's people who did something each and every day. And so people are forever hearing new advice and new advice confuses them. I think what we have to remember, and this is why this study was so important, in that we very rarely look more than 12 months, three months, 12-week programs. Mm. A lot of those activity programs for intense exercise, they only look at people at the 12th week. Then they might check them three years and five years later. But if you look at the compliance with that intense activity, it's dropped right off. You know, things happen in life. Mm. People don't do the same thing at 40 that they did at 80 but as long as they were doing activity each and every day religiously whatever that activity was they did great there may not be a huge amount of money or followers in it but ultimately that consistent daily exercise even if you start it later on in life could be a really great fitness goal to have and one that will really determine healthy aging and may actually lift at least one load in plenty of women in trying to figure out what they're supposed to do When I speak with women who've had a recent diagnosis or who have discovered a reason behind their pain or what it is that they are experiencing, they often talk about the load that has been lifted. The pain might still be there and they might be struggling to accept the diagnosis, but there's still a sense of lightness that can come in having an answer, in being taken seriously, in finding community and support and solidarity in others. So that's a positive. While social media and other parts of the internet have undoubtedly caused harm, they've also provided options to women. Social networks have provided community, particularly in providing access to groups of women who are experiencing something very similar to you. Last week, I introduced you to historian Eleanor Cleghorn, who's just published a history of women's health called Unwell Women. I asked her, given the difficult history she had just spent years examining on women's health, what did she have to feel optimistic about? She suggested some of these loads that women have been carrying, and and sadly this is not all women, but some of these loads have been lifted and they've enabled some women to find the support they needed and to extend some of that support to others. Some of this, she says, has even changed as a result of COVID-19. I think that the most positive thing for me is the way that in the last couple of years and right now, and you know, off the back of the pandemic, conversations around women's health, around insecting biases are suddenly on the table. You know, these aren't issues that are hidden behind like sociological journal paywalls. These are issues that are affecting all of us that have come into our homes, that are on the front of our newspapers. And the, you know, the fact that we can now have these conversations about our bodies that women are in a position in this point in history where we can say, yeah, I'm in pain, or yeah, I find gynecological exams really difficult, or yeah, I can't get pregnant. You know, just the fact that we can speak up and speak out about our bodies, I think is really radical because I look back through these histories where 
<clears throat> women are bound up in shame and silence and stigma, something that even I experienced, I think, as a young woman, like, you know, you don't talk about that. And just the fact that we can do that and that we can feel like we are valuable in that sense, I think is hugely important because going forward, you can see the power of when women speak out to think that women's voices can actually affect real change. So that's what makes me feel really hopeful that we really are in this position where our culture around women's health is changing meaningfully and where we understand all the differences and divergencies of being a woman and needing healthcare in a way that we haven't really appreciated before either. So yeah, that, that's what makes me feel hopeful because from that acknowledgement that our pain is real, that our health, you know, that the health issues we'll face across the life cycle, we'll all experience those differently. That can only lead, more awareness of that can only lead to more passionate, compassionate and humane and equitable healthcare because I think the majority of medical professionals want that you know they're working in a rigged system they do want to listen they do want to incorporate patients thoughts and feelings and experiences so mm. yeah that's how I imagine you know a future healthcare one that actually treats people's human beings <laughs> yeah sounds a bit utopian doesn't it but um, but yeah that's what makes me feel really Eleanor's hopes for the future are not impossible to imagine, but it's a future requiring a rethink of research trials and the idea that the default body that should be studied is a 70 kilogram white male. It's a future that needs to take into consideration the fact that women are not one homogenous group and that there is no single norm or equivalent who can speak to women. And it's a future of women's health including any research efforts and public awareness raising and advocacy that must consider the many different loads women are taking on, the weight of which will differ depending on her circumstances. These loads that pull on our time and energy can lead to poor mental health, to chronic illnesses and eventually even to disability or death. And while we know women can make a significant contribution to their families and their communities in gaining more understanding on different areas of health, we want to ensure that women also have the time and energy to consider her own. This is the Women's Health Project. Thank you for listening.